Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. We've been doing a series in our church for actually about three months now called Heart Matters, where we're really talking about what goes on in the heart and the reality of the fact that every part of our life is ultimately moved by the activity of our hearts. What's going on inside makes its way out into our actions, into our thoughts, our feelings, and... uh, The last few weeks, we've been dealing with the whole idea of where our treasure is, our heart will be also. And today, I want to talk to you about what it means. uh, Basically, the idea is a changed heart is a giving heart. A changed heart is a giving heart. And so first, I'm going to review where we've been the last two weeks. I'm going to review where we've been the last two weeks. So if you look at the screens... Matthew chapter 6, verse 21 and verse 24 have been my key text the last two weeks, and I'd like to read it here. It says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the fact that our hearts will follow whatever we treasure most. No matter what we say is valuable to us, no matter what we say is important to us, ultimately, our hearts will move toward what is truly valuable to us. What is treasured in our mind, we will move toward, we'll give toward we'll spend our time with, we'll be devoted to. And then we learn that that whatever we focus on will fill us with either light or darkness. And if you look at the entire text, if you you get into uh, starting in verse 19 going all the way through verse 24, we learn that if we look upon something and gaze upon it and it fills our sight, it will either be God and it will fill us with light or it will be money or relationships that have gone um, south and have taken the place of God or you know, think about it, your job, whatever it may be, affections, addictive behaviors, whatever it is we focus on will fill, its with, fill us with itself. Right, And so, worshipers become like what they worship. Those who gaze upon something, look upon something, and love something, have passion for something, will ultimately become like what it is they gaze upon. And then we also learned last week, you cannot serve two masters, God and money. It's human psychology, it's the way we're made, it's the way we're created. We can't have a divided heart, we can't have a divided mind. We, uh, if, if you find yourself kind of going, being pulled between two things, you're not going to last long there. Eventually, you won't be able to maintain a double focus, a double heart, a double mind, and you'll end up choosing one or the other. That's just the way you and I are created. So this week, I want to um, talk to you a little bit more about a similar thing, and I want to start with a little story. Um, Peter Marshall was a former chaplain of the United States Senate. And uh, one day a man came to him with a concern, and he said, Chaplain, uh, 
I, I'm struggling in the area of tithing. I'm struggling in the area of giving of my finances. And this is what he said to him. He says, I have a problem. I've been tithing for some time. It wasn't too bad when I was making $20,000 a year. I could afford to give the $2,000 then. But you see, now I'm making $500,000 a year. And there's no way I can afford to give fifty grand. And Dr. Marshall reflected on this wealthy man's dilemma, but he gave him no advice. He simply said, yes, sir, I see that you do have a problem. I think we ought to pray about it right now. Is that all right? And the man agreed. So Dr. Marshall bowed his head, and he prayed with boldness and authority. Dear Lord Jesus, this man has a problem, and I pray that you will help him. Lord, reduce his salary back to the place where he can afford to tithe. In Jesus' name, amen. I thought that was a really funny story because really what this chaplain, what this pastor did was he got to the heart of the real issue in this man. He bypassed the circumstance and he got to the heart. And the heart was this guy was having a hard time letting go of his money. He was holding on. He was greedy. And uh, I'm going to talk to you today and I... I always think it's ironic or it's funny when I'm getting ready to speak and I look around and I met some new people today, a number of guests, and I think, oh, great. The Sunday I'm going to talk about money, we have a bunch of guests. So I'm talking about money today. I'm going to talk to you about tithes and offerings, about giving and what it means. And before I do, let me just say this. Um, If you're new here, I haven't done a series on stewardship, on giving, on finances, and I feel bad about this actually, in four years. The last time was uh, April and May of 2015. So I thought, wow, has it really been that long? Now, we've done a message here or a message there, but we haven't done a series on this. So you need to know, in case you're here and you're like, oh, great, the preacher's talking about money, it's a money church. In case that's kind of what you're concerned about, you just need to know I haven't even spoke a series on this in four years. And that's a bad thing, not a good thing. I'm not proud of that. So before I get into my message, I have a few disclaimers for you. Okay, I, I like to start with disclaimers. That always gets people in a, in a funny place. Here are the dis- disclaimers for speaking on tithing and giving. First of all, we will not apologize or be timid to talk about money or generous giving. And the reason I say that is because we see churches on TV that abuse this. We see televangelists that take advantage of people. Maybe you've come from a church where that happened and you saw things not stewarded or done rightly and now you've reacted to it. And so because of that, pastors are aware of that and most pastors are afraid to talk about money and they stay away from it. And that's a huge mistake. And the reason it's a huge mistake is because you and I need to be taught about finances. We need to know what the scripture says about it. Did you know that Jesus talked more about money than he did about heaven or hell? Think about that. Heaven or hell. Money. He used money all the time in his parables, the idea of stewardship all the time, because he understood something about human beings. We're attached to our stuff. We're attached to our checkbooks. We're attached to our dollar bills. We're really, really attached. And if we don't have an adjustment come to us, and if God doesn't cut to our hearts, we'll continue to be attached. And here's the problem. When you're attached to something like money, it will ruin your life. It will ruin your life, leave you sorely disappointed. It will let you down. It will break your heart because money, money is a bummer. Let me tell you what, when you got a lot of it, it can be a real problem. When you don't have enough of it, it can be a real problem. 
right? Can I get an amen from somebody? Now, here's my second disclaimer. We will never manipulate you when it comes to money or generous giving. I will teach what the Bible says and let it work its wonders. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher from the 1800s, said this. He said, the the Word of God, the Bible is like a lion in a cage. And if you let it out, it'll do the work. So I'm just going to share with you what the Scripture teaches about it. And you can grapple with it. Don't uh, stone the messenger, right? But, But look at the message. Thirdly, we'll teach on generous giving because it will benefit your life and benefit the church while giving honor to God. You and I need to know how God's economy works because the Bible is full of promises for people who give. The Bible shows over and over again that when we trust the Lord with our resources, with our time, our talents, and our treasures, when we trust Him with those things and we trust that He will take care of us, that God will be sure that our needs are met, and many times He'll even do more than meet our needs. He'll give us more so we can be a conduit of blessing to people. Have you ever found yourself in your life saying something like this, gosh, I wish I had more so I could help that person? Anybody else besides me ever think that? Right? I know some of us make lottery promises. If I win the lottery, I'm going to do all these great things. And the truth is, is most people don't. Some do, but most people don't. The lottery ruins them because they can't steward that kind of money. Because whatever you're faithful with in little That will determine where God can trust you with more. So the truth is, is right now, where you're at, your current condition of life, whatever you're doing with what you have, time, talents, and treasures, whatever you're doing with it currently is actually what you will do with it later if you have a lot more. So the question is, am I spending everything just on me, myself, and I? That's the question in all of our lives, and that's what Jesus was addressing. So, as we get into the message, I've got through my disclaimers. Here's my first point today. God designed giving our first and our best to be what roots out our love of money. Giving our first and our best roots out the love of money. 1 Timothy 6.10, you know it well. uh, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many pangs. I've told you that in my own journey as a pastor, I've watched a number of people over the years depart from their walk with Christ, leave the church, leave their families, all kinds of crazy things have happened because they got attached to money and the pursuit of it, and it became the most important thing in their life, and it so captivated their time, their energy, that after a while, they quit being a part of a church, they quit uh, focusing their attention on their faith and their time with God, and then they're neglecting their spouse and their children, and before you know it, they're out there in left field, and it ruins them, it leaves them shipwrecked. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 says this in the New Living Translation, honor the Lord with your wealth, and the first part of everything you produce, look at this, then he will fill your barns with grain, and your vats will overflow with good wine. Now, most of us don't deal with grain or wine, but we do deal with money. We do deal with finances. We've been stewarded with lands, property, houses, and those things were meant to be given back, parts of that were meant to be given back to God. And the parts that were meant to be given back are the best parts, the first and the best. That's what belongs to God. I wrote here, giving God our first and best attacks 
the love of money head on. Like, I, I've practiced this a few times in my life. I've noticed that when I'm feeling like really insecure about finances or I'm feeling attached to something and I'm having a hard time letting it go, that'll be a time in my life when by faith, I'll go ahead and give to somebody else that needs or in a circumstance where someone, you know, where, where there's a special offering maybe called for. Why? Because I recognize I'm insecure about this. I'm grasping. I'm holding on. I, I'm really trying hard to, to make this mine, my precious, right? And when that comes over me, I'm like, okay, it's time to let go of something. It's time to let go of something because that's not healthy. That's captivating my heart. So before I get into the rest of the message, I think we need to define some terms, and I'm going to share these terms with you. The first term is the term tithe. Many of you have heard that term before. People say tithe. Tithe is not just a word for giving. It is a word that means tenth or ten percent. The tithe was a biblical method that God gave his people. They were to give a tenth of everything they earned. That's what the Bible taught. In fact, let me just share this with you that's kind of a crazy um, truth that a lot of people don't realize. When you put all of the biblical tithes together in the Old Testament, and I'm not suggesting you do this, so don't get freaked out, but when you put together all the tithes that God called his people to give, it actually comes to 23% of their income. How many of you knew that? Some of you are like, what? Yeah. There, was, there were three different tithes that people gave, and two of the tithes came 20%, and the third tithe was a tithe that they gave every third year, and it was to go toward, specifically go toward the poor on the third year. They were to bring everything and give that, and that was a separate tithe. So they gave about 23% of their income. Now, one thing they didn't have was the tax burden that we deal with. They didn't have, you know, large portions of their income being taken out at the beginning. It was only later in Israel's history when King Solomon got into a bunch of building programs and wars that they began to be taxed too much. But before that, they were a people that were not taxed much, and their giving went to meet a lot of the social needs that existed among them. But 23%. Some other biblical terms for giving, you can see it on the screen, the tithe, first fruits, offerings, sacrifices, and alms. Alms specifically were giving to the poor. So these were the different kinds of giving, tithing, offerings that the nation of Israel engaged in in the Bible. Um, first fruits, uh, one person was saying after the first service, they came up to me and they said, you know how I've practiced first fruits in my life is whenever I've got a new job, and this is really cool, great testimony. Whenever I get a new job, I take my very first paycheck that I get from that job and I give it completely to the Lord. And that's kind of similar to what Israel practiced when it came to their gifts. When they would have a harvest at the end of the harvest season, many of them would take the first parts of their harvest and they would give it to God. And that's the first fruit offering. Does that make sense? So I love that what, what Robert Morris says here, you'll see this quote. He says, God created giving for us to root out selfishness. That's why we give. Amen? You're kind of quiet in here. I must be talking about money. So let's walk through. I'm going to take you right now through a biblical survey. Do you all know what a Bible survey is? A survey is when you kind of go from the beginning to the end, or you go over the course of what the Scripture teaches on a given subject. Now, I obviously don't have time to go Genesis to Revelation, but I'm going to pick out some key spots in the Bible just so you can see that what I'm teaching is from the Scripture. And here's the first principle. The firstborn and the firstfruits in the Bible belong to God. The firstborn and the firstfruits belong to God. Look at Numbers 3.13. For all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. 
They shall be mine. I am the Lord. So God had a redeeming program, a redemption program with his people. And when they had children, he wanted those children, the firstborn children that opened the womb to be given back to him. Well, you say, what does that look like? That's kind of weird. Well, what they would do is they would dedicate the child um, in, a, in a ceremony, and they would bring an offering, and the offering was often an animal. And that animal would go along with the child, and that animal would be the substitute in the child's place. So it was their way of saying, God, we're giving you this child, but we're not going to actually give you our child as a sacrifice. We're going to give you this animal in the place of the child. And God said through that, pro- that program and that process, the firstborn are mine. Exodus twenty three nineteen says this, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. And I want you to notice a theme that goes throughout the Bible, and that is that first fruits and offerings and tithes are always connected to the house of God. And in the New Testament, the house of God is you and I. Amen? The church is called the house of God in Ephesians chapter 2. So the giving went to the house of God. Proverbs 3.9 in the ESV says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Now I wrote here again, we give God our first before our wants and our greeds can get it. That's why we operate in that principle. Some people, they start out, I mean, if you still, does anybody in here still write checks? Some of you still write checks. Many people who write checks, the way that they'll give in their giving process will be right at the beginning of the month. Every time they get a new you know, paycheck, if it's uh, twice, you know, twice a month or once a month, the first check they'll write as a principle before God is their tithe check or their offering check. They'll write it first because they're saying to God, before something else can consume this, like my desires for this or that, I'm going to give it to you, Lord. I'm going to take care of it right now. And that's the principle of giving God our first and our best. In, in my case, I have an auto withdrawal, right? And a number of you do as well. And that auto withdrawal, it comes in right after my two pay periods every month. So the two pay per- periods happen say that fast three times, the two pay periods happen, and immediately I have this debit out of my account that goes toward my giving. And, and that's my way of saying to God, I trust you with my finances. I give you my first and my best because they belong to you. They don't belong to me. You see, here's what we have to see. Everything we have is God's. Think about that. You might be here, you might be a skeptic, you might be an unbeliever, you might be, a per, you might be an atheist or an agnostic, or you might just be a person that's on a journey, or you've been through churches that have done you wrong, or you, you may be here and you went to a church that abused things financially, and so you've you got a lot of maybe walls up and you have concerns up, but let me remind you of something, and if you don't believe, I, it's okay, God's going to meet you right where you're at, but let me remind you of something. Ultimately, the truth is, is that everything we are And everything we have, including every heartbeat, every breath, every penny we make, every gifting, every talent, every ability, if you're super smart, if you're really creative, if you're a hard worker, whatever you do with your hands, whatever you do with your mind, whatever you do at that desk, when you're typing, whatever you do for vocation, when you're changing that baby's diaper, when you're spending time with that child, whatever it is that you do in life has been given to you by God. And what giving does is it is our way of acknowledging that truth, that it's not mine. 
Because human nature in its fallen state, in the state of sin, uh, went from being others-oriented and God-oriented and vertical-focused and horizontal-focused to me-focused. And the big word that comes out in our lives that demonstrates the reality of that condition is mine. It's the word of possession. It's the word that that's my, I worked hard for that. You worked hard for that and God gave you the ability to work hard. He gave you the energy. He gave you that ability to be industrious. He put that inside of you. That's the reality. And so giving is our way of saying, oh yeah, Lord, it came from you. And you, to demonstrate trust, I'm going to give some of it back to you. Amen. Number three, tithing in the Bible helped to fulfill the principle of first fruits. Did you know before God ever gave commandments in law, he had people tithe? Before there was ever a commandment to tithe, people were tithing. In Genesis chapter 14 and in Hebrews chapter 7, we hear the story of Abraham and this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, we know in Hebrews, is Jesus, a type of Jesus. And Abraham goes out to battle to actually rescue his nephew. And as he's out rescuing his nephew, he wins a battle and he gets all these spoils from the battle. And immediately he finds this priest named Melchizedek, who's a mysterious figure, we don't know anything about him, and he brings a tithe of all the spoils from the battle, he brings a tithe to Melchizedek. In Hebrews chapter 7 in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews interprets that that person Melchizedek was Jesus, and Abraham was tithing to Jesus, which ultimately all of our giving is to Jesus. Amen? In uh, Genesis 28, I want you to see this one. Jacob gave the Lord a tithe after he encountered him at Bethel. What's important about this is I'm going to get to this story later. I'm going to go more into depth in this, but look at um, Genesis 28, 20. It says that, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, by the way, have any of you ever bargained with God before? I, I remember I bargained with God. When I was 19, I had an encounter, not quite 19 actually, 18 and a half, I had an encounter with God. My life was off the rails. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll and all the other garbage that goes along with it. And, and uh, I was really in trouble. I was trapped. And I kept trying to quit doing the things I was doing. Anybody ever been there and you couldn't quit? Right? And I remember I had an encounter with God one night. I don't know why I was doing this, but I was living with a friend and his dad. And they were gone. And I was at this apartment we lived at. And I was watching TV and right in the middle of watching TV, I became overwhelmed with this sense of guilt and shame for my sin and where my life was going, and I was afraid, and I felt out of control. And I remember I got down on my knees. Don't, don't ask me how I knew to do that. I got down on my knees, and I said, God, if you're real, please help me. I can't quit doing the things that I'm doing. Please help me. And Lord, I, and if you'll help me, I'll keep following you. And then in the midst of that, I tacked on, and could you help me get a job? <laughs> and, you know, because God is kind and because God is merciful, not only did his presence come into the room, and I felt him for the first time in my life, and I was aware of him, and I was like, oh, wow, somebody's here. But on top of that, I got a job a couple weeks later. And 10 months later, I got reunited with my real father who'd been a drug addict and a convict, and now he was a, preach, a preacher. 
and we were reunited, and I began to follow Jesus Christ. God intervened in my life. Amen. Yeah. So Jacob has had an encounter. This story, I'll get into it in a little bit. But in this story, he's had an encounter with God, and his response back to God is to kind of bargain with God. So he's making a deal with God, and he says, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, one, check, and will keep me in this way that I go, two, check, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, (laughs) I love this, check, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, check, then the Lord shall be my God. This is hilarious. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. Here's the connection between God's house and giving. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Other translations say a tithe. So we see it was a response to an encounter. We'll get into it in a little bit. And out of that, out of that bargain, he said, God, if you'll show yourself strong on my behalf and help me with things, I'll give a portion back to you. That was a regular practice in the ancient world at that time. The tithe in the Old Testament laws. Let's look at this really quick. Remember, we're on a biblical survey. The tithe was actually, it, it turned into the principle of first fruits. The tithe is the Lord's, first of all, Leviticus 27, 30. Look what it says. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So you catch that? The tithe belonged to God, first and foremost. It's not ours, it's His. Um, and then we see here, first fruits and tithe go together. Second Chronicles 31, 5, look what it says. And as soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruit of grain, wine, oil, honey, and of all the produce of the land, and they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. Let me just make a point here. They were an agrarian community, an agrarian culture. They didn't deal in coinage. They dealt in what they brought from their land, and there were places in both the tabernacle and the temple of God where where God would meet the people. Uh, There were places called storehouses, and they would bring all these grains and all of these oils and wines and honeys. They'd bring them all in to the house of God. And then they would be used for a variety of things. They would be used to take care of the priesthood, the ministers. They would be used to take care of the poor and the needy. They would be used for the upkeep of the temple or the tabernacle. They would be used for many types of different ministries that existed at that time. So you see here that the first fruits and the tithe go together. They're the same thing. The first fruits of everything, and then they brought in the tithe. And did you know that Jesus taught on the tithe? A lot of people don't realize that. They think, ah, Jesus didn't say much about it. He didn't say much about it, but he did say this, and this is really interesting. A little background, um, Genesis 23 is what I call the woe chapter. Any of you ever read the woe chapter? In Genesis 23, over and over again, Jesus brings what I call the woes to the religious leaders of that day. And his woes are rebuking, challenging, correcting showing them that their hearts are in the wrong place, that they don't love God like they say they do, and that even though they keep His commandments, their hearts are far from Him. And in Matthew 23, in the midst of the woes, Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes. The scribes were the lawyers and the ones who um, copied the Scripture over and over again for generations. And they were also experts on the religious law. And the Pharisees were a sect of believers who were known for being the best law keepers, the best rule keepers around. They kept all the rules. And so Jesus says to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint 
and dill and cumin. Now, just so you understand what Jesus is saying, these are obviously, right, little spices that are very small. And he says, you're caught up on, you know, you, you get all these things together and then you, you try to figure out exactly what a tenth is and then you set it aside and it's kind of like, right? Here's my tithe of mint, Jesus, or here's my tithe of mint, God. He's saying you're so caught up in your little exacting ways to make sure you're doing everything just right, but look what you've done. You tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. What are they? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now, Jesus' answer to them is not quit tithing and make sure you take care of that. It's do both. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. Isn't that a great word picture? You're caught up in being so exacting, you're just trying to keep all the rules just right, and in the midst of it, you're straining at a gnat, get that little thing out, and you're making a big deal of small stuff, and you're swallowing a camel because you don't care about things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. What's Jesus' point? Get your heart in the right place. I don't want what you can give. God doesn't want what you can give if it's not full of justice and mercy and faithfulness. If your heart isn't toward God and toward other people, none of that stuff matters. He's back to the heart. You still with me? So, I want to illustrate this with the story of Jacob. And if you got a Bible, either a paper Bible, or as you can see here on the picture, a digital Bible, either on a smartphone or a tablet, I'd like you to turn over to Genesis 28, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 22, and we're going to read the story of Jacob. While you're turning there, let me give you a little background about Jacob. There were these three guys in the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob's name was turned to Israel. And Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the tribes of Israel, okay? And, and Jacob was Abraham's grandson. So Abraham is considered the father of faith. Isaac, his son, was a promise from God. He, they named him Isaac because they were so happy when he was born, and his name means laughter, right? And then Isaac had two sons, and he had one son named Esau and one son named Jacob. And Jacob and Esau, Esau was um, born first, but Jacob became the one who led and ruled. And one of the things we learn about Jacob is that Jacob was kind of a bit of a scoundrel. He was a bit of a deceiver. He tricked his brother out of his birthright. He sought to steal his inheritance. And after this happens, he finds out from his mom, your brother is going to kill you. You need to leave. So Jacob flees his family, and he goes to another land, and on the way to going to that other land, while he's fleeing his brother that he's ripped off and cheated and deceived, and I think one of the things that I see in that story is that the people in the Bible are just like you and I. You don't agree? Oh, you're better. Okay. Well, they're just like me then. I'll just say that. And verse 11 says... He's, remember, he's running from his brother, and this is what happens. And it says, and he came to a certain place, and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. 
Taking one of the stones of the place, remember, he's running away from his brother. He's in the middle of the wilderness. He's tired. He doesn't even have a pillow. And taking one of the stones of the place, he puts it under his head, and he laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on that ladder. Angels were going up and down. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. So Jacob looks up, and at the top of the ladder is a vision of God, and angels are going up and down on it between heaven and earth. And then the Lord says something to him. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east, the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Just a quick side note, which is really not a side note. He's talking about you and I. Did you know that? The offspring of Jacob, the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of Isaac are not just Jews that were born in Israel. They're all the people who would put faith in the Messiah. And we know that from Paul's writings in the book of Galatians and Romans. The offspring and all the families of the earth that he's talked about that are going to be blessed are you and I. So you and I, think about this, this prophecy was probably given somewhere between 3,800 and 3,500 years ago. Somewhere between 35 and 3,800 years ago, God spoke to a man named Jacob and he told him that all these families of the earth would be blessed and he's speaking about you and I. You and I are the recipients of a promise spoken 35 to 3,800 years ago. That's powerful. It's fulfilled right here. And so let's continue. He says to him, behold, I am with you. How many of you know there's nothing that you can hear from God that is more comforting, more encouraging, and better than I am with you? Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob has a revelation. Have any of you ever had the revelation that God's in the midst of a situation that you thought he was far from? Because there are some of you in this room right now, you're in the midst of a situation and it seems like God is checked out. It seems like he's nowhere to be found. You might be in the midst of a really bad relational situation. You might be going through a marriage problem. You might be going through a work situation that is beyond, maybe it's a health thing. And you are in the midst of something and it feels like God has abandoned you. And the word that I have for you is God has not abandoned you. He is with you and he's present right in a circumstance you can't even you don't even know he's there. You can't feel him. You haven't experienced him. He seems afar off. Let's continue. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and it's the gate of heaven, verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took up the stone that he'd put under his head, and he set up for a pillar and poured 
oil on the top of it. So he set it up as a pillar. He poured oil on the top of it, and that was his way of consecrating it and setting up a memorial to God and saying, this ground is holy. This ground is set apart to be the house of God. Let's continue. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, and here's where he made that vow we talked about earlier, saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear that I, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Just a few quick points here as I finish up. First of all, God revealed himself and promised Jacob he would fulfill all of his promises to his family. And when God reveals himself to you, it changes your life. He sees this ladder. He sees the angels. He sees God, and his life from that moment is radically changed. When you um, plot the course of Jacob's life, you begin to see this is part of the process of God getting to the real issues of his heart and bringing him to the point to where one day he can be called Israel. See, in that moment, Jacob knew God was with him. And Jacob was a mess. Jacob was a mess. We learn even later after this that he was still a deceiver. He still, he, he still was always trying to get an angle on people. And so God ended up putting him with a, a, an uncle, ended up putting him with an uncle that took advantage of him and gave him a little bit of his own medicine. And that process got to the real issues of his heart. But in this moment, God says, I'm with you. And I'm going to be with you as you go, and I'm going to be with you when you come back, and I'm going to fulfill the promises I made to you. Secondly, Jacob was surprised that God was present in a place he didn't expect. God was at work in his life, and in that place, though he didn't recognize it. Because if God before us, who can be against us? Amen? A lot of us need to realize that God's right where you don't think he is. I've had a number of times in my life when... Uh, it felt like God was not in my situation. And I would even pray, where are you, Lord? And then I would look back later in 2020 hindsight, and I would realize, oh, I see the handiwork of God there. Oh, the Lord was working there in that relationship. Oh, the Lord was working in that situation. And I recognized over and over again that when I couldn't see him, he was at work. He's always behind the scenes doing the things that he does. Amen? Thirdly, Jacob responded with a vow that Bethel would be God's house. He recognized God's special presence in that place. And what I want to say to you is the church is now the house of God. And the principle holds here as well. The principle holds that where the house of God is, we bring our gifts, right? We bring what we are to him. And then fourthly, Jacob responded with a vow to give a tenth of everything that God provided. And this is something I noticed from this text. When your life has been wrecked, and rocked by encountering God in his house, your natural response will be to give back to God. Giving is a response to the grace of God. Let me say that again. Giving is a response to the grace of God. We give because he gave. We give because we've experienced his love and his grace. We give because he's changed us. Have you ever noticed in your life when you fall in love, you want to give? Think about it. When you met that person, when I met Peggy, nobody had to come and say, hey, Doug, I saw you met a girl. You know what you should do? 
is buy her gifts. Nobody had to say that. It's like, I'm telling everybody, I met a girl. Bring. And what do I do? I go out and get her things. Gifts, right? Jewelry, flowers. I want this woman to know that I love her, right? It's the same thing with God. We give because we've experienced His grace. We've been loved. Giving isn't some kind of bummer duty. It's our way of showing God that we trust Him and that we love Him and that we know He's going to take care of us and we know He's a faithful husband, a faithful provider, a faithful father. We know that He's good. We know that He's not just, you know, I want you to give because you need to give because giving's a bummer. Paul says giving should be done hilariously, cheerfully, joyfully. And how is it done hilariously and cheerfully and joyfully? Because it's done as a response to something that's been done for you. When you recognize, oh my goodness, God has been so good to me, you want to give. You're not under a compulsion. It's a normal part of life. It's a a normal part of what happens with us. You know your heart's changing. You know your mind's changing. You know God's up to something in your life when you find that you just want to bless people with your time, with your talents, with your treasures, that you want to use whatever you have. Lord, I may not have much, but what I have, I want to give back to you in a way that will honor you and glorify you. That's what giving is. Giving is responsive. It's not us saying, I'm going to give to God so I can twist his arm because I want to get something back. It's rather, I'm giving to God because he's already given so much. And as I give to him and I demonstrate my trust in him, one of the interesting things is, is he continues to give back to us and continues to bless our life. You see, it's a natural response. Giving is what we do when the God who gave his son for our sins makes himself real to us. God calls us to give him our first and our best. When we do that, we demonstrate that we trust him as our provider. When we put our money in God's hands, he'll make sure we're always taken care of. God gave his best and his firstborn son to save us, forgive us, and restore us. And when, when, when he does that and we recognize it, we want to give back. I love what Winston Churchill said. He said, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Isn't that true? I've still never in my life heard a story or a testimony from anyone that's come to the end of their life and I've been with a number of people as they near death and some right by them as they've died and I've still never met anybody that said to me, I just wish I could get more. But I always meet people that say, I wish I'd spent more time with my kids. I wish I'd given more time to my family. I wish I'd given more time to things that counted. You know, people, they they begin, when you get, the older you get and the closer you get to meeting death, you, you really begin to assess what you're doing with your life. And you ask yourself the question, am I a getter? Do I live to get all the time? Is it just about me and me having nicer things and more stuff? Or is it a life that exists for the sake of others? and a bigger purpose than me, and the kingdom of God in the earth. What's it for? Those are good questions to ask. We know God gave his best. He gave his firstborn, his only begotten son. And in doing that, he demonstrated the pattern and showed us the life he's called us to live. 